You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to a special edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, the Supreme Court 2021. The decisions on Obamacare, gay rights, voting rights, student athletes and free speech. And the decisions that are yet to come involving hot button issues like abortion and guns. Plus the shadow docket. It's the most consequential reproductive rights case in a generation and promises to be the most controversial case of the current Supreme Court term. The court is considering Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy and cutting back or reversing Roe v. Wade, the landmark case that has guaranteed abortion rights in this country for nearly 50 years. During oral arguments, the conservative justices and the liberal justices were on opposite sides of the question about the precedential value of Roe. Here are Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Brett Kavanaugh. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I I don't see how it is possible. Why should this court be the arbiter rather than uh, Congress, the state legislatures, state Supreme Courts, the people being able to uh, resolve this? And there'll be different answers in Mississippi and New York. Joining me for this hour are Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. Welcome, both of you. Greg, I was surprised during the oral arguments that the conservative justices talked so openly about implying the possibility of reversing Roe when just last June the court struck down a Louisiana law that restricted abortion rights. Yeah, uh, June, you weren't the only one who who was surprised. Uh, Really, all the questions from the conservative group, at least the the non-John Roberts conservative uh, side of the court, 
were suggesting that the court was indeed uh, seriously considering overruling Roe v. Wade and the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. I think part of that was because the abortion rights side in this case, in a sense, is going for broke. Um, they, are, they did not try to offer the court any sort of so-called narrow way of deciding the case, any way where the court might say, uphold the Mississippi 15-week ban without overturning Roe. The, the abortion rights lawyers and the, and the Biden administration were very upfront in saying, if you uphold this law, you are effectively overturning Roe, and there's really no other line you can create to replace the line that the earlier decisions had set. Kimberly, did it seem as if all the conservative justices were on board with that, or were there some that might be outliers? So for me, June, the three justices that I were watching going into these arguments were Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett. And as Greg really suggested, it really only seemed like Chief Justice Roberts uh, was trying to find this middle ground. And when I looked at really what Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett were saying, it looked like they were arguments to outright overturn Roe. And so, you know, the clip you played talked about uh, from Justice Kavanaugh talked about you know, if the Constitution, in his view, doesn't speak precisely to whether or not abortion is a right guaranteed by the Constitution, well, then shouldn't the court stay out of it and leave it up to the states? And for Justice Barrett, for her part, you know, she was really looking at how Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey really balanced the interests um, between the state's interest in protecting potential life with a woman's right to choose. And she suggested that, you know, the burdens on women weren't as strong as Roe and Casey had made them out to be, at least not anymore. And she pointed uh, specifically to these safe harbor laws that allow women uh, to turn over their children after birth. And she suggested that that really alleviates um, some of the burdens of forced parenthood. And so I think from my mind coming out of those arguments, there really only was one justice in the middle. And I don't think that his view is really going to prevail here. The court has already ruled in a case over the strictest abortion law in the country, SB8, the Texas abortion law. It was a limited ruling where the court left that law in force. Greg, is that bad news for abortion rights advocates? It sure seems that way. Uh, this law cannot be squared with, with Roe or, or Casey, um, far stricter than anything the Supreme Court has allowed previously. And the fact that the court was willing to let it stay in effect, uh, and in fact let it go into effect back in September, uh, surely says something important. Uh, this, the challenge to the law by, by the providers can go forward, but only in a very limited form. Uh, the problem with this law, which, which uh, delegates enforcement power to private individuals, is that structure makes it hard for a, a plaintiff or a court to know who it is that can be enjoined to block the law from having an effect. And uh, so the plaintiffs, uh, with the help of the Justice Department, basically tried to sue everybody they could to try to uh, get that sort of an injunction. And what the Supreme Court said was, uh, hey, there's only a few state officials you can sue. And uh, after the ruling came out, the abortion rights side ha had a conference call with reporters where they said basically um, – this is not a way we can block the law. Uh, th those, that narrow path the court left open for us is not good enough to get a, give us the kind of injunction that we need to actually block this law and let abortions broadly resume in, in Texas. And, and surely the Supreme Court uh, was aware uh, that this is only a very narrow path. And uh, uh, to get back to your question, that cannot be a good sign for the future of, of Roe and Casey.
Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, I'll continue this conversation with Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson and Greg Storr. We'll discuss whether the Supreme Court will okay the carrying of handguns in public. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. For more than a decade, the Supreme Court has been largely silent on gun rights. But will the newly conservative court go where the justices have been reluctant to go in the past? During oral arguments in November, the conservative justices were uniformly critical of the New York law that requires a special justification to get a concealed carry license. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts. You don't have to say when you're looking for a permit uh, to speak on a street corner or whatever that, you know, your speech is particularly important. So why do you have to show in this case, convince somebody that you're entitled to exercise your Second Amendment right? I've been discussing this here at the court with Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson and Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Kimberly, what's your reading of how the justices might rule here? Well, coming out of the argument, um, as you hinted at, June, it really does seem like the court is primed to say that the right to have a gun really extends beyond the home. And the real question to me uh, for the justices wasn't whether states could prohibit guns outright, but really when states could place restrictions um, on the right to carry a gun outside of the home, because that place is very sensitive. So think of things like schools, of course, for the justices, they're thinking about courts, um, and other places where you wouldn't want guns traditionally to be around. And that really seemed like the real tension here among the justices. And so, you know, we saw Justice Barrett ask questions about, you know, could states limit, uh, you know, gun carrying whenever it's New Year's Eve in Times Square. Why not in Times Square all the time, considering that it's always crowded? Or why not even further Manhattan? And so I think that's really the line that the justices are going to have to sort out why they're conferencing about this case and not whether or not the right actually extends. That seems to be um, pretty much uh, what's going to happen, at least from my reading. Greg, unlike the arguments over abortion, these arguments didn't surprise me. Have some of the conservative justices been fairly open about the Second Amendment and where the court's heading? They sure have been, and and a number of them have been urging the court to take up more gun cases and uh, keep uh, gun rights from being treated, as they put it, as a a second-class right. As Kimberly suggested, the real question in this case has always been how far the court would go. It's not clear that they are going to have to get to those questions about the sensitive areas that did uh, come up so much during the uh, argument, as it is the case is set up for the court where it could just say this restriction that they have in New York, where they basically bar almost all people from having a right to carry a handgun in public, uh, that, that is unconstitutional, and we'll sort out those other questions later. Note that Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Every Town for Gun Safety. Let's turn to another topic that, in contrast to the Second Amendment, the court has been very vocal on in recent years, and that's religious rights. It seems that lately, every time there's a case involving religion, it's a good bet that the court is going to end up expanding religious rights. So, Greg, tell us about the case argued this month about Maine's school tuition funding program. Sure. This is uh, the latest in a line of cases about 
government funding and uh, either in the form of something like tax credits or, or just a spending program, and whether the government can, can say, we don't want that taxpayer money going to a church or a religious school. In this case is about Maine's school program. There are parts of rural Maine that don't have their own public schools. And so what Maine does is it says the people there, the so-called administrative units, can either set up a contract with another uh, public school or an, or an approved private school, or it can just pay the tuition at one of those schools that a parent sends their child to. Um, and the state policy requires that if the unit uh, takes that last option, uh, that the schools be non-religious. In other words, parents can't get the government to pay the tuition at a religious school. So a group of parents in Maine sued over this and said this is discrimination. You're saying you're going to fund a secular school but not the Christian school we want our child to attend. Uh, Maine argues that this isn't the kind of school choice program where the court has previously said you have to be non-discriminatory. This is just, they say, an alternative means of providing a free public education. And part of a free public education is that it's, uh, you know, it's not religious. Not surprisingly, there was a lot of skepticism among the conservatives at the, the argument from the state. They seem to think the policy will not only involve discrimination against religion, but also discrimination among religions. There were some suggestions that, say, a school that's run on Unitarian Universalist principles would get money, but not schools that more rigorously try to instill religious doctrine. So uh, it seems like we're going to extend the winning streak for religious rights at the Supreme Court. And Kimberly, tell us about a case last term, the Fulton County case, where religious rights won out over gay rights. Right. So this was a case out of Philadelphia where the Supreme Court said that the city's refusal to contract with Catholic Social Services to provide foster care for children because they would not agree to certify children to same-sex couples, that that violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. And I think it's really interesting to note that in a lot of these cases, the Supreme Court is really testing out the push and pull between the Constitution's two religious clauses. So we've talked about the free exercise clause, which says governments can't burden religious practice, but there's also the establishment clause that says that governments can't become too entangled in religion. And, you know, there used to be some, what the Supreme Court called this play in the joints, where there were things that weren't prohibited by either one, and there was some tension, and states had a little bit of wiggle room um, to kind of experiment in there. But as these cases keep coming up, we, we see the Roberts Court in particular um, kind of putting a thumb on the scale of the free exercise clause at the expense of the establishment clause. Um, and I expect that that's not going to stop anytime soon with this Mencken case. And there's already a case for next year that the justices are going to hear that are going to put this tension uh, in the forefront once again. So, Greg, it seems like the court is blurring the line between church and state, but doing it sort of inch by inch. It has been uh, inch by inch in a lot of these cases. The court has consistently sided with religious rights. Uh, I can't honestly think of the last time it went the other direction. It is an area where um, you frequently have all six of the conservative justices uh, on the side of religious rights, and that gives them a certain amount of flexibility as they come up with a majority opinion. And uh, the court's appetite seems, seems rather great. It has continued to take up religious rights cases, and uh, there's every reason to think that they will uh, push the law further. 
Okay, Greg and Kimberly, stay with me. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, the shadow docket. Is it as mysterious as it sounds? I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The shadow docket sounds more ominous than it actually is. Basically, emergency orders of the Supreme Court, short and unsigned, issued without oral arguments. While the shadow docket certainly isn't new, it's grown in size and significance. In fact, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was asked about it in her confirmation hearings. You know, the shadow docket has become a, a hot topic in the last couple of years. But, you know, even when I was clerking on the court in 1998, it was not typical for the court to issue opinions explaining why cert was denied. I've been talking to Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson and Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr about 2021 at the court. So, Greg, is the shadow docket getting attention because the court has been handling a lot more substantive issues on the shadow docket, or is there another reason? It's all the above. Uh, The court is handling more cases, more substantive cases, and the way it's handled some of those cases has been controversial. Let me just start with with a logistical thing. The timing of a lot of these orders, they've come out oftentimes in the evening hours, sometimes close to midnight. To take one example, when the court let that Texas abortion law go into effect on September the 1st, it, uh, first of all, took no action on September 1st itself, so that the law went into effect at midnight, 
And then almost exactly 24 hours later, it issued an order saying, oh, and we're letting the law take effect. Again, that was close to midnight. So that sort of thing gets some criticism uh, from the outside. I guess those midnight decisions are not very popular with Supreme Court reporters. So, Kimberly, vaccine mandates, which such a divisive national issue, the court allowed vaccine mandates without religious exemptions in New York and Maine. In the Maine case, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh suggested the court shouldn't grant emergency requests if the justices are unlikely to consider an appeal. What do you make of that? Are they on the side of the people who are saying too many cases, too many substantive issues in the shadow docket? Well, I think that we have seen some movement from the justices, you know, in response to some of the criticism that we've seen over the shadow docket. So we saw Justice Alito really laid out some of those criticisms, just like Greg mentioned, the midnight orders and things like shortened debate and a lack of reason opinion. And, you know, to some extent, we've seen them respond to that. I can think of two instances where the justices actually took the unusual step this term of taking cases off of the shadow docket and setting them for oral argument more in line with kind of what they normally do. So that includes the Texas abortion case that we already talked a little bit about, but also a capital sentencing case that touches on religion. But I don't think that they're really grappling with the other criticism that Greg suggested, which is that the court is really dealing inconsistently with these cases. I do think that the COVID restrictions, not just the vaccine mandates, but all kinds of restrictions are an example of how, you know, these are all playing out on the shadow docket. um, And they're not always consistent with how the court comes out. And Greg, in a one-paragraph order, the court left in force a lower court ruling that required the Biden administration to restart the Remain in Mexico policy. So these are not just, you know, cases involving Maine and, and New York. These are cases, national implications. They are. And, you know, part of what is leading to this, uh, in fairness to the court, is, and this happened under the Trump administration as well as under the Biden administration, is that you have more and more federal trial judges issuing nationwide injunctions that block an administration policy across the country. And then it gets up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is asked, say, by an administration, hey, you need to let this policy go back into effect rather than have it be blocked all across the country. Uh, It does put the court in something of a bind every time an administration does something uh, that there's immediately a lawsuit and oftentimes there's an injunction. And the court has to decide, at least while the litigation goes forward, does the policy go into effect or is it on hold? So, Kimberly, a lot of criticism about the shadow docket. How much do the Supreme Court justices care about public outcry? Because I'd say they don't, but then you have several justices who came out, for example, Amy Coney Barrett, and said, you know, we're not a political institution. So is it hitting home? Well, I think it hits home in the sense that we see a lot of calls now about the legitimacy of the court. And of course, all of the justices are concerned with not really how the public views its individual rulings per se, but instead how the public views the court's role in our democracy. 
But I think that the abortion case shows that the conservatives and the liberals are really on different ends of how they think that the justices should respond to those criticisms. And so we see the conservatives, you know, we talked a lot about Brett Kavanaugh saying that this is sort of a power grab by the court to get involved in abortion when the Constitution is silent. And he says that really strikes at the heart of the legitimacy of the institution. And on the flip side, you know, we heard Justice Sotomayor say that, you know, all of this gives the court the stench of a political institution. And that's what's causing all these concerns over legitimacy. Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with Supreme Court reporters Kimberly Robinson and Greg Storr, and we'll discuss the most important Supreme Court decisions of 2021. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I've been talking to the Supreme Court reporters for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Law, Greg Storr and Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, about this year at the court. So, guys, let's look back at some of the most important cases of last term that came down in the last month of the term. And I emphasize that because the most watched cases always seem to come down at the end of the term. The court took up Obamacare for the third time. And, Kimberly, the decision was kind of anticlimactic. It was, but I do think that that's something that makes it, you know, a significant ruling from the Roberts Court. So this particular challenge was about an amendment to the law that was passed under the GOP-led Congress in 2017. Without going into the nitty-gritty, you know, the question was whether or not that amendment kind of undid the whole of Obamacare. And the answer from the justices was, we don't really know. Instead, they found a procedural off-ramp as the justices are known to do when they don't want to decide a particularly thorny issue. And here they said that the individuals who had brought the challenge didn't show that they had been harmed enough in order to be able to sue in court. And I think the significance is that, you know, the Affordable Care Act once again survived this kind of existential challenge. And it seems like critics of the Affordable Care Act are going to have to turn to Congress rather than courts if they want to undo the law. Next, a case that didn't get as much attention as Obamacare, but it did lead to President Joe Biden ousting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's regulator. Greg, tell us about the investors' challenge and how they fared. Yeah, this is the case about Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae uh, and the uh, government uh, agreement back after the housing crisis where the government bailed those two entities out and uh, in exchange basically took all the profits. And so you had a bunch of investors who sued the government saying, hey, you have cost us billions of dollars. Uh, That was illegal. And the investors had two basic kinds of claims. One, they said that the federal government lacked the authority to do this under federal statutes. And secondly, they said there was a a big constitutional problem with the agency that oversees Fannie and Freddie, which is that uh, it was set up in a way that the, the director of the agency couldn't be fired by the president without cause. And they said that that unconstitutional arrangement meant you had to throw out this entire arrangement of taking the profits. And basically what the court did is it sharply narrowed the scope of this suit. So the investors lost in a big way in terms of what they were seeking. They were allowed to go forward only on a very narrow portion of their their claim. And more broadly, what the court said was, we do actually think there's a constitutional problem here. This this official, the head of the FHFA, uh, was uh, uh, insulated from being fired by the president unconstitutionally. So we're going to strip out the director's job protections, and that means the president can fire the director for 
for any reason. That's not really what the investors wanted, but that's what the Supreme Court held. And that's what gave Joe Biden the authority to fire the holdover Trump director, a guy named Mark Calabria, uh, which the president did almost immediately as soon as the, the Supreme Court issued, issued its ruling. And that's uh, uh, the kind of ruling that extends a line of decisions that conservatives conservatives tend to like that puts the executive branch of the government more firmly under presidential control. A comprehensive answer to a complicated case. Uh, Kimberly, the court curbed voting rights by limiting the reach of the landmark Voting Rights Act. And this was one of the 16 decisions that went strictly down partisan lines. That's right. So this was Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee. And it involves a challenge to two Arizona voting regulations that the challengers had said disproportionately affect voters of color. Now, the court ended up upholding those provisions, but that in and of itself wasn't all that earth-shattering. Instead, it seems like the significance of this case is going to be the legal test that the justices used um, to uphold those rules. And that's because this, these claims were brought under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that you mentioned. Uh, and that section has really taken on more importance since the Supreme Court effectively cut off challenges under another section of the law uh, in, in Shelby County that was deemed to be more favorable to these claims. So in this Brnovich case out of Arizona, the court really seemed to set up a test that will make it harder for groups to challenge states uh, and their voting regulations. Uh, but we may get a pretty early test. Uh, that's because the DOJ under Attorney General Merrick Garland has sued Georgia for its recent election changes under this Section 2. So uh, we'll see that one uh, and how it plays out pretty soon. It's a case with real immediate repercussions. Now a good news decision. Good news for everyone, perhaps, but the NCAA, I suppose. The court cleared the way for greater compensation for student-athletes. Greg? Yeah, June, this was an antitrust case where the court upheld a a district court's order that said schools must be allowed to offer athletes things like post-graduation internships and academic achievement awards of about $6,000. The NCAA had argued that uh, we uh, get have broad antitrust immunity, at least when it comes to our eligibility rules, because those eligibility rules let us offer this distinct product of amateur sports. And the Supreme Court unanimously said, uh, no, uh, we don't, uh, quote, reflect, reflexively reject all challenges to the NCAA's compensation restrictions. The court instead said, we, we look at them under what's known as the rule of reason, um, and that's what the district court did in this case. And it, it allowed a pr- pretty limited amount of additional compensation, uh, something that the, 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 the Supreme Court said wouldn't blur the amateur pro distinction. Uh, So relatively narrow in terms of the practical effect, uh, but it's a marker. And there was a concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh that suggested he would be willing to go much further in a future case uh, and potentially uh, let student-athletes get much more in the way of compensation. Now we'll turn to something totally different, Google versus Oracle, which overturned a victory for Oracle, which was seeking as much as $9 billion dollars. It involved programming code, which is why it's close to the bottom of my list, Kimberly. So Greg did (laughs) Franny Mae and Freddie Mac, so you get Google Oracle. Right. So this was a copyright case that was really closely watched by the tech industry. It was dubbed by some as the copyright case of the century. 
Um, so this is a dispute over Oracle's Java programming language, um, known as application programming interfaces, or better known as APIs. And really at a 30,000 foot view, these are just software interfaces that help you talk to your computer. Now, Oracle, as you mentioned, sought billions of dollars from Google saying that the tech giant had violated its copyrights by using that code, but ultimately the court sided with Google. And that's seen as a good thing for software development because otherwise tech companies um, said they wouldn't be able to piggyback on the use of this API, which is really widely used. Um, Instead, they'd have to develop their own, something they said would really hamper the development of technology going forward. Uh, My favorite case, the case of the cursing cheerleader. That's the way it was called, at least. But uh, it did involve a cursing cheerleader. So, Greg, tell us about that. It did. It involved a 14-year-old cheerleader who uh, used a profane Snapchat rant to uh, say what she thought about not making the varsity cheerleading team. Uh, the, the school, or at least the cheerleading team, punished her for this rant, which she sent from off campus. And the, the, the question at the Supreme Court was whether the school, under the First Amendment, could punish speech that took place off campus but, but had to do with something that involved the school. And the Supreme Court, in an 8-to-1 ruling, said, at least in this case, the school went too far. Uh, when this cheerleader sent this, this snap, she, uh, as I said, was off campus. Uh, it was nothing disruptive towards the school. Um, it didn't harass anybody. It didn't bully anybody. Um, but the court said um, there's not a bright line here, uh, that school officials do have some authority to punish speech that takes place off campus. Um, in particular, if it does involve something like bullying or harassment or is threatening to somebody at the school, that's a place where the school can intervene. But it's going to be very much a case-by-case determination. Uh, and in this particular case, the school district went too far. When the After the decisions came in last year, the number crunching started, and it was discovered that with Justice Barrett on the court, Justice Brett Kavanaugh has supplanted the Chief Justice, John Roberts, as the court's new ideological median. Um, and I talked to an expert this week that said it's not the Roberts court anymore. Maybe it's the Barrett court. Maybe it's the Kavanaugh court. Maybe it's even the Gorsuch court. So, Kimberly, is that the general feeling that Chief Justice John Roberts has lost control of at least the decision making? Well, you know, I think it's it's different from kind of some of the cases that we just talked about that came down last year and what we're likely to see um, at the end of June this upcoming year. And so at the end of last year, I think we did very much get a lot of decisions that were sort of kind of wishy-washy, no clear winners, or at least the court didn't go as far as liberals um, were concerned about or conservatives has, had hoped, um, kind of in the line of what we think of Justice Roberts really hoping um, that the Supreme Court will do and taking kind of small steps to change the law. This term, though, is shaping up to be very different. Um, and as we talked about with abortion and gun rights, we could really see these sweeping changes um, that do really show that 
either Justices Kavanaugh or Barrett or Gorsuch or any one of the other uh, conservatives have really taken over the court center. Thank you both for sharing your insights into the court. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson and Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always listen to the latest legal news anytime on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.